Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. As we finish up this series today that we've been looking at, Jesus' great Olivet Discourse, um, where he talks about end times or eschatology, which is the study of end times. We've talked about the tribulation. We've talked about uh, the signs or conditions of the world at this time, which they could point to as, as being evidence that the end is coming. Uh, we've talked about the fact that uh, we need to be ready Mankind needs to be ready as a person watches the news today, as a person follows current events, as a person uh, just observes the world around them. They ought to be able to see that things are happening, things are coming together in a way that is consistent with what the Bible says they will, what Jesus predicted that they would uh, back 2,000 years ago while he was still walking upon this earth before he uh, went back to the throne of, of God. There are a lot of sentences begin, though, with the question, are you ready? We know we're to be ready for the coming of the Lord. But think about this. There are a lot of sentences that begin with the question, are you ready? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to listen are you ready to be reasonable? There are a lot of sentences that begin. Are you ready for some football? To quote that great poet, Hank Williams, Jr. Now, the implication is that if you are not ready, then you probably better get that way. And you better get that way quickly. People do not have too much trouble getting ready for things that they like to do. We probably didn't have too much difficulty or trouble getting ready Last Thursday to eat Thanksgiving dinner. We probably didn't have a lot of, lot of difficulty there. <clears throat> but there are other things that we don't like to do that it's hard to get ready. It's hard to get ready and go to work on Monday morning and start another week. Especially if we're gonna, if we anticipate having a rough week or a difficult week. But to get ready to eat, to get ready to sleep, to get ready to have fun, to go on vacation, do a leisure time activity, we don't have that much problem getting ready for. Why? Because we look forward to those things. We long for those things. And we are to long for, look forward to the coming of the Lord. It shouldn't be a bad thing. It shouldn't be a scary thing. It shouldn't be a hard thing at all. Almost invariably, though, as human beings, our flesh, our flesh or desires are central to determine they're the central determining factor in our doing what we do <coughs> excuse me Ravi Zacharias says we live in a generation who listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings even within the church that's not much different we listen with our eyes we think with our feelings and we don't always analyze things to the degree that we should for this world, it is a strange concept to consider that Jesus Christ will one day return. This world looks around and this world looks at, um, looks at, uh, the conditions around us. It anticipates many different things. It, <coughs> excuse me, it thinks about, um, 
its plans. It thinks about retirement. It thinks about vacation time. It thinks about a holiday. It thinks about summer coming. But very rarely does anything beyond that really enter into serious consideration. It may be a strange concept to think about the Lord's return, but it's true. Daniel Webster said, There is nothing so powerful as truth, and often nothing quite so strange. This generation, our generation, thinks that it has things figured out. That it's arrived. That it's been enlightened. That it's reached that point of knowing. That it has largely overcome the atrocities, the injustices of the past. But has it? Has it really learned all it needs to know? Well, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know what the Word of God says, then you're still wandering around in darkness. And that describes our world. The world says it's entered into this postmodern era that supposedly is better than anything that has come before it. But I would argue that it's not better than anything that has come before it. With one exception, and that one exception is, is that we're now closer to the fruition of our salvation than when we first believed, just like the book of Romans tells us. I like what Harry Truman said. He wisely pointed out that the only things worth learning are the things that you learn after you know it all or think you know it all. In reality, it is just like Proverbs 1, 7 says, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. This lack of wisdom can lead people, and it often does lead them to overlook the most obvious things. For instance, the signs of the times that Jesus' return is near. Let's take our Bibles now, open to Matthew chapter 24. And I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word today, beginning in verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came, and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the hour that your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched And he would have not allowed for his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Surely I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. 
But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this text today, as we wrap up this uh, great sermon, this great discourse, Father, in Matthew chapter 24, enlighten our hearts, we pray. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're seated. First thing we see here is a call for us to be watchful in verses 36 through 44. There's a call to be watchful, ever watchful. Verse 36 starts out with the word but, which is a conjunctive word linking two ideas together. And what is being linked here? Well, what has been said before and what's about to be said. Those two ideas are, in other words, one complete thought. Jesus is still responding to the disciples in response to the question that came up. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age back in verse three? And Jesus answered, it says in verse four, and said unto them, and he's still talking. He's still speaking in response to those questions. In other words, no one knows the day or the hour that heaven and earth will pass away. Verse 36 says, but of that day and of that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Not even the angels know. Mark 13:32 bears this out. Not even Jesus himself knew. Only God alone knows the timing. Well, how could that be? Isn't Jesus God? How could Jesus not know the day or the hour that the Lord will return? <clears throat> but keep in mind this, that Jesus voluntarily set aside um, some of the attributes, some of the knowledge that he possessed as being God. We see this. In several places, we know that uh, God became hungry. The Lord Jesus became hungry. How could God be hungry? Uh, God is perfect. How could he hunger? How could he be thirsty? How could he be tired? How could he be sleepy? But yet all these things, the Gospels tell us he indeed did. We know that Jesus was born as a babe and he was laid in a manger. We know that... that, uh, God is omniscient. God knows all things. God is all powerful. He's omnipotent. We know that God is omnipresent. God's presence is everywhere, all the time, every place. But we also know that God is able to voluntarily lay aside some of those attributes. As Jesus was growing up as a boy, (coughs) we know that Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 tells us that Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. So we know that Jesus uh, was uh, undergoing a growth process consistent with that of a normal Jewish boy. Even though he certainly was God, he was divine, nevertheless, he voluntarily laid those things aside to a certain degree. And to what degree we're not told that, we're not sure for, uh, of that, but we know that he did because these scriptures that I, that I um, presented talk about that. 
So he's able to say here, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, but my father alone. And Mark 13, 32 tells us not even Jesus himself knew. The reality of Jesus's return is compared with the events in the day of Noah and the great flood. People were eating and they were drinking. They were getting married and they were giving their children away in marriage. <clears throat> Basically, they were just going about their business. They were doing their normal activities, going about life as usual until the day that Noah entered the ark and it began to rain and then cisterns of water came up from the deep and the whole earth was flooded with water. And I'm sure even then, many people, even that Noah had preached to, many people that Noah had warned that you better get right with God still didn't quite put two and two together. Just like we're told that at the end of time, there will be people who have heard the gospel, they've been preached to, they may have even read the Bible, that still won't figure this all out. And the time will come that they'll try to run from God, they'll flee to the mountains, they'll flee uh, to places they think that they can get away from God and be hidden from the face of God. And they even pray for and call for death. They even desire for the rocks, it says in Revelation, to fall in on them, to hide them from the face of God, rather than to repent. An amazing thing. People will be going about their business just like they are today. Business as usual. It takes something pretty big to interrupt this world and its normal flow of things. It takes something like a 9-11 or it take, to even partially disrupt this world. I mean, people still got up and went to work after 9-11. It was just a few days that airline flights were grounded and then they were up and flying again. Most of this world was still, was still functioning as usual even after something like that. What would it take, though, for this world to really, I mean, the whole world to really be truly disrupted? Well, he says things are going to be going on as normal. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, right up until the time that it happens. People were oblivious in the days of Noah to what was going on until the torrent of rain started falling and the floodwaters rose. The coming of the Son of Man will be just that quick. It will be decisive, just as God has planned all along. But to the world who is oblivious to spiritual truth and spiritual realities, it will be quick, it will be sudden, and it will catch them totally off guard. There's no reason for it to catch the world off guard. There's, in fact, there's every reason for them to be ready. They should know. God is clear on this. They should know to be ready. Just as we know to be ready. But yet, still yet, people will be Caught off guard. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. Basically what that means is people will be doing whatever people normally do. People will be doing a lot of other things. They'll be working at the office. They'll be driving a car. They'll be doing whatever... People do, and they'll be caught off guard. The overarching point here is that people won't be ready. 
Perhaps they should have known. In fact, absolutely they should have known, but they won't. When one is taken, the other is left. We're not told for what purpose. Now, it could be for the purpose of judgment that one is taken. We do not necessarily know from this passage if the one being taken or the one being left is actually better off. The real key is, as verse 42 says, watch therefore because this truth or this reality for you, because of this, do you not know, you do not know the hour that the Lord is coming. Common sense would tell you, though, that if someone knew what hour a thief was going to break into their home, you'd be ready. You'd be sitting there in the dark with a shotgun or you'd would have secured the door extra uh, extra tight, or you would have your phone in your hand and you'd be ready to dial 911 to get the police. You might have even alerted the police ahead of time, said, hey, about 11 o'clock, somebody's going to break into my house. I want you to come by about five minutes till and be ready. And you catch them in the act. That's what anybody would do. That's what common sense would tell anybody to do. But nobody's going to be ready for this. People get robbed at a time that they least expect. While they're fast asleep. While they're at work. While they're on vacation. While they've gone out for the evening. They're just not ready for it. It will be unexpected. And the Lord's return will be unexpected to a spiritually oblivious world. And it will be a world where the Holy Spirit has been removed. The Holy Spirit's influence won't be here by this point. And everyone will be operating in purely worldly, fleshly terms. Increasingly, over time, the people of this world have been and are being conditioned to base truth on feelings rather than fixed points of reality. You notice that? Everything's based on Feelings. I mean, you even see this in the in the court system anymore. I mean, it's very hard to convict someone of a crime. Why? Because the burden of proof has gotten so high. Now, I don't think we ought to put people uh, to death or imprison them unjustly. I don't believe we ought to do that. But on the other hand, it just seems like that that there's a preponderance of evidence. But yet, if there's any tiny little bit of doubt. People are getting off these days, especially in high-profile cases. We've seen a torrent of them over the last 15 or 20 years. But increasingly, people, the people of this world are being conditioned to base truth on feelings. They'll look at somebody, I, I just don't see how they could have done this. I don't see how he could have killed his wife. I don't see how she could have done that to her children. I don't see how anyone could have committed something like this. I just don't feel that they could have. But yet, the heart is wicked, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know that? Scripture tells us that. Well, people are going to look at it, and they're going to increasingly look at it with feelings. It's more and more about feelings. The reason that homosexuality is becoming more and more accepted in our world is why? Because of feelings. Instead of somebody in a faraway place on the East Coast, the West Coast, or in another country is, is involved in that kind of lifestyle, 
Well, no, now it's I have a daughter. Now I have a son. Now I have a grandson. Now I have a cousin who's involved in this, and it's much more personal. And we love them. We care for them. And so feelings then are dictating, to a large extent, our theology. And we're adjusting our theology based on what? Our feelings. And it's that way with so many things. And and the Lord says it will be that way in time. I mean, truth is basically set aside in favor of what? In feelings. It's feelings. It has been said, and Oz Guinness said this in his book, Time for Truth. He said, truth is true even if nobody believes it. And falsehood is false even if everybody believes it. That is why truth does not yield to opinion, fashion, numbers, the office, or sincerity. It is simply true, and that is the end of it. It is permanent thing. I mean, God's word is true. I mean, if there come a point where not a single person on the face of this earth believed the word of God anymore, God's word would still be just as true as it's always been. But yet, if every living human being believed the word of God and believed the truth of it, it would still be just as true. I mean, it is what it is. God's word is is breathed by him. It is the truth, period. We can bank on it. It is a fixed thing. It's only human beings that waver and ebb and flow back and forth in their belief system. Well, society moves in this direction. It moves away from the word of God. Does that make what they're saying true? No, God's word is what it has always been. It's a fixed standard. But we see in Romans chapter 1 kind of the the plight of man as he moves in the wrong direction over time. We see that mankind moves to this point where it says he worships and serves the created or the things that God has created instead of God, the creator, who is blessed forever or fixed or eternal. Um, And so we see the problem there. The Lord has promised he will return. He hasn't told us when, but because he doesn't return and because the world has got its own thing going, the world says, "Ah, I don't think the Lord's going to come. I think that's a myth or a fairy tale. And that's where we are today. Notice the second thing in our passage, the faithful and evil servants that are talked about in verses 45 through 51. The two servants depicted in these verses illustrate two attitudes of people, two attitudes that people will have concerning the return of the Lord. The faithful and the wise servant will be given more responsibilities in the Lord's kingdom. The unfaithful and the foolish will continue to act foolishly. A person's behavior stems from what? It stems from their nature. It stems from their desires. When we desire something, we naturally tend to look for a way to justify our behavior. People who have murdered other people find a way in their words to justify that murder. Well, this is what they did. Therefore, I was justified in taking their life. Or people that have stolen, they'll justify uh, stealing. People have tried to justify rape. People have tried to justify terrorism. We hear that all the time, don't we? Well, they're justified in blowing up other people. Why? Because 
And you fill in the blank. There's a lot of reasons. We're seeing a world that tries to justify its behavior. Very rarely does anyone step forward and say that I did this, yes, and I was wrong in doing it. The unfaithful will act foolishly, we're told. A person's behavior stems from the nature that's within them and the nature of sinful man is sinful. We shouldn't be surprised when mankind commits sin because he has a sinful nature. One may have the nature of Christ while another has the nature of sinful man. That is a nice way of putting it. The more accurate way of stating it is, is many have the nature of their father, the devil. That's what Scripture says. In fact, John chapter 8 and verse 44 says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. It's a pretty grim picture there of the devil. And it's a grim picture of all who follow the devil. Well, you're not going to find many people if you start interviewing them out on the streets. Oh, excuse me, sir, but do you follow the devil? Excuse me, ma'am, do you follow Satan? Well, you're not going to find very many people that will affirm that they do that. Now, you, you might find a few, but you're not going to find many that are going to say that. What's really going on is there are lots and lots and lots of people that are following the devil, and they don't really realize that they're doing so. What they're actually following is this world's system, and they're following the lies of the devil. They just don't realize where they've come from. They don't really realize where they've come from. We don't always know the origins of things. We follow laws, and we, we couldn't tell you the history of that law. We don't know when that became a law. We don't know who was the one that introduced that as a law. We don't know when that was... Uh, we don't know a lot of the history of it. But we know it is a law and we follow it. That's the way the world is. The world doesn't know where some of these came, things come from. They just hear it, they believe it, they follow it, they don't question it. But if they took the time to trace it back, they'd realize, wait a minute, this goes back to the first lie that Satan never told mankind. Or this goes back to this story in Scripture where this person fell into Satan's trap and people have been falling into it ever since. Right before that verse, John had said to them in John 8:42, two verses earlier, If God were your father, by contrast, you would love you would love him. Jesus said, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. The evil servant will be cut in two, a form of judgment used in the ancient world. There will be, as it says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an indication of the great remorse that will be felt by people. Weeping, crying, wailing, uh, lamenting, carrying on in a very graphic and external way. And gnashing of teeth just to show the severity of the internal pain that many people will feel in that time. Indeed, in hell, 
That is exactly what mankind will experience. Great remorse, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth. A lot of bad things are going to happen to this world. Bad things are already happening in this world. But they're going to get worse and worse and worse. And we're told here by Jesus that people need to get ready. The reality of his return will one day be realized. It will be seen. It will be experienced by people. And considering what is going to happen, it is high time that all people live for Christ. People that don't know him need to turn to him. And people that do need that do already know him need to live for him to the greatest degree that they can. So I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we're so thankful that we have the hope of salvation, knowing that um, this world is not all there is for us. This world is just a temporary place that, that you put us for now. We know your word says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven where we wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for that day, Lord. We long to be out of this sin-filled, sin-saturated world. We look forward to the day that we can spend eternity with you. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today that you might draw them by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to come and begin a new life with you. Father, there may be need for church membership here today. There may be need for recommitment. Father, there may just be a need to kneel at the altar and say, Lord, help me be ready and help me do everything I need to do in the meantime to point others in the right direction toward the reality of the end of this world and the fact that you will return again. Help me be ready. Father, we pray that you bless now in this time of invitation. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.